Welcome everyone to Life After You Start podcast. Today I have a very special guest, Irina. Uh, she is someone who fled Ukraine about six months ago. She's been living in the US for that time, there for six months. And I'm very happy to have her on this podcast because I think her story is not a very unique story, but a story that so many people don't know about or perhaps heard in the media, but in bits and pieces. A story of someone who experienced war and who is Ukrainian and now is living in the United States and trying to make the best out of it. So when I say not a unique story, um, the reason why I say that is there's so many people, and as we go through this interview, we will learn about that. So many people that come from different walks of life, uh, Ukrainians, Christians, uh, Muslim Chechen or Tatars that have experienced a very similar experience with Russian government. And so without further ado, Irina, where did you grow up? Where were you born? So I was born in a small town in the north of Ukraine, which is closer to Belarus and uh, quite close to Kiev, the capital. It's that part of Ukraine where, if you talk about the West, it's mainly Ukrainian-speaking, and then the East is Russian-speaking, and I was born in the middle. Did you, in the city where you grew up, did you have the majority Ukrainians, or Russians, or both? Ukrainians, Ukrainian, like uh, no one would identify as Russian, maybe very unique examples, or maybe like someone relatives would visit sometimes and they were living in Moscow or Russia. So I did have exposure to them growing up. Growing up in Ukraine, did you, how was it? Did you learn Ukrainian language at school? Because I think it's interesting for a lot of people listening is that um, when you are a part of a post-Soviet Union Republic, say Ukraine or Azerbaijan, in a lot of cases, you still learn Russian and Ukrainian. Was it the case for you? Uh, yes. Uh, so my family is Ukrainian speaking. And then at school, we would have, so this is, this is like not very good, but this is what, that, that was the case basically in two early 2000 when I was going to school, right? So we would have Russian language and, you know, we have, um, you know, like the score, your grades, and you have uh, names of subjects and then your your score at the end of mm -hmm. each academic year. So we would have we would study Russian language as part of the curriculum. And at that time, the, the grade said native language, Russian, and then Ukrainian language as a separate as separate. And they've changed that. Obviously, but at, at that time when I was growing up and I was like 9, 10, 11 years old, that's what I saw in my, in my grade book, that Russian was called a native language. And then Ukrainian language was like um, also a language, but... Secondary. For me, it was always primary. In my mind, it was always primary because I was born Ukrainian well, I wasn't born Ukrainian speaking, but my family was speaking Ukrainian. So for me, it was never a secondary. For me, it was all, uh, always primary. But 
at school, I saw something different. That's really interesting. So you, you, you and your family ethnically Ukrainians. However, when you open your grade book, you see Russian as your primary language, and then you see Ukrainian as your secondary. Yeah, that's what the grade book said, which I think was just an outdated grade book and was definitely a mistake by the school. And right now, this year, or maybe even after the revolution, something like that would never happen at any school in Ukraine. But at that time, it was still the case. Like things like that could, could happen and no one would pay too much attention to it. That is really interesting. Speaking about Ukrainian language, I made a video recently about how when I was in school and I grew up in post-Soviet Union, one of the reasons why people in my school knew how to say I love you in Ukrainian, which is is because it was considered a more downgraded version of Russian way of saying in a way it was a conveyed to us that Ukrainian is a rudimentary language to Russian. After moving to the United States, and especially when the war started, that conversation became more and more prevalent. So talk to me about how was it like to be a Ukrainian in Ukraine and also speaking Russian? Did you ever feel that Ukrainian is better or Russian language is better? Did you ever come across Russian people that would maybe make fun of Ukrainian? language? That's a very good question. So the this will be a very long answer to this question because Ukraine went through such a, a like through so many transformations because uh, Ukraine is basically we're the same age almost like 30 years old right so no people know my age. <laughs> I mean me and Ukraine right so Ukraine became independent in 1991 and I was born in 1993 so basically all the transformation that Ukraine as a nation was going through this time I grew up uh, like through that time and um, so essentially yes I was I was born in a Ukrainian speaking family I loved studying Ukrainian at school I didn't like studying Russian at school and I will explain so I lived in a small town that was 50, like maybe 70 kilometers away from him, from the capital of the district. Here would be like the capital of the state. So basically 70 kilometers away, when you go to the bigger city, people were speaking Russian there. And that always confused me. Mm -hmm. And also when you speak Ukrainian, this was like before the revolution, right? In 2016. When you speak Ukrainian, they would think that you're someone from the village or you're less educated than, than them. Or like Ukrainian language and people who were speaking Ukrainian language were seen as of lower class. Mm. Wow. That's in Ukraine. Like I'm, I'm not, and I am sure a lot of people will confirm the same. So the reason why I never liked Russian is because like I I was judged by the by the language as my family speaks and my family taught me right so I was already judged before even given the right to speak or express my thoughts right in my own country same would go if you go to Kiev the capital and then when I was 16 years old 
um, some of my family members were moving to the west of Ukraine, um, to Lviv, and I went there to help them move like things from the apartment. From they were moving from Kiev to Lviv, so I was just helping out my aunt and uncle to move. And when I arrived there, I like I I noticed how everyone speaks Ukrainian on the street, and they speak very proper Ukrainian, and they are very polite. They they address you like an equivalent will be a lady, like someone would say this to you like in public transport. So in Ukrainian, that would be pani. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you're a younger girl, that would be panyanko. And that what a beautiful was... word, panyanko. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they like I would hear that a lot. And I was just like so charmed by this environment in Lviv and that I didn't have to force myself to well, first of all, I never spoke to I never spoke Russian whenever I went to Kiev or um like other bigger cities. I was just always trying to make my statement that I am in Ukraine, there is Ukrainian language, I, and I speak our state language. But when mm -hmm. I was Lviv, I didn't have to like, you know, it was just easy. I didn't even have to pay attention that I'm speaking a different language. So- Was Russian also a state language? I don't think Russian was ever a state language in the last 30 years, but there were definitely a lot of conversations of making it like a second state language or like just protecting Russian speaking population. And I'm quoting Russian propaganda right now, because as you know, the reason, like the reason for the war from, from the perspective of Russian government is to protect Russian speaking population in Ukraine. And from my experience, Russian language was never oppressed in Ukraine. Ukrainian language was oppressed in Ukraine for years. And this is not, so this is my experience being born in 1993 and living through the, like witnessing revolution and the war. And when Ukrainians kind of started to realize that we are so much different from them, we have our own culture and we want to cherish and, um, like keep it alive and we don't want to we don't want to identify with russians um you brought up something really interesting that i would like to talk about really quickly here the terminology let's get terminology out of the way when you, the war in ukraine started russian government was calling the military operation was calling it a military operation Correct. and also the operation of denazification then later Russian governments in the form of the federal channels have announced that the citizens, the Russian citizens in Russia, in Ukraine are oppressed Correct. and they need to protect them and save them along with some of the Ukrainians that need to be protected from the Nazi Zelensky. Then after some time, I think a couple of months later, you would notice that in the federal channels and telegram channels as well, the military operation turned into the operation to protect the entire Ukrainian nation from what they called passive passive Nazism. And mm -hmm. as an, another term emerged at that time was Nazified nation. So talk to me about what you feel when you hear denazification. I hear genocide. <laughs> mm. um, because like I said, the whole story about protecting Russian-speaking population 
is not true. That was never the case in Ukraine. Um, about uh, Zelensky or like Ukrainian people being Nazi is like the most ridiculous thing I I could possibly ever hear. Mm. When I hear when I hear a military operation or denazification, demilitarization, I hear genocide of Ukrainian people. You almost I see that you're raising your eyebrows. It's almost like hard to process those terms when you hear them. Yes, because imagine you live you you live your life normally, right? You go to the university, you have a job, you have friends. Everything is just like very peaceful. Mm. Then one day someone walks in with a gun, calls you a Nazi and kills you. Like it's just difficult to accept the reality. Let, let me be a devil's advocate for just sec one second. A lot of people who are actively supporting the war in Ukraine, as we know, there's three camps right now. There are people that are not supporting war in Ukraine and they're open about it. There are people that support it and there are people in the middle who are neutral. The people who completely support the war in Ukraine, they say, well, there is a part in Ukraine, there's a couple of cities in Ukraine where the majority of the population is Russians. And so when they speak Russian in public, they're being told not to speak Russian, to speak Ukrainian. When they try to be openly Russian, um, express that identity through culture, language, et cetera, they also are told to, to, not, to not do that openly. Um, have you personally experienced any discrimination? Have you ever witnessed any discrimination against Russian people in Ukraine? Right now? Prior to the war. Never. This is this is the biggest lie of this century. <laughs> and I've never witnessed that. I've witnessed only things the other way around, especially when the war started. How were Ukrainians discriminated by Russians? Well, first of all, and just going back to my story, like one of the reasons why I didn't want to move to Kiev or to the east of Ukraine, because there was such a huge Russian influence language and like other things and uh west uh, the west of ukraine where like everything ukrainian was so much cherished and preserved and you didn't have to um change who you are to be there for me personally from and so this was probably like experience for me as a child so we had like uh, in the town where i lived uh, there was this family and um, th their children lived in Russia. I don't know if they were Ukrainian or Russians, but they lived in Russia. And for summer, their kids would visit and we would just play together uh, on the street. And I remember how they always said they don't understand what I'm saying. Like my language is funny to them. And then uh, Russia is the biggest country in the world and uh, the most powerful and the greatest country, you know, like typical imperialism thoughts that I, I think are ingrained in children from the beginning. And I also remember for the very first time, I was very, um, it was before I even went to school, I came back home and asked my mom to show me the map 
because I didn't believe <laughs> I didn't believe it <laughs> uh, so they were like trying to prove to me how they are like better than us because they came from this big country that's the most the biggest and the most powerful country in the world to this place which is Ukraine where their grandparents live that's kind of you know not as great in their eyes for anybody listening and anybody who thinks that Ukrainians and Russians are brothers how would you explain this internal almost hatred towards other Slavic or I should say Slav ethnicities such as Ukrainians Belarus people and I think in some part Serbians as well what do you think makes Russians say oh we are the greatest country in the world we are the superior nation or we are this or we that we are that what makes an ordinary russian person say that in your opinion so if you like so it's the like imperialism and they like these thoughts about being superior to every nation and they keep um prevailing in russian society through centuries like since probably that country appeared on the planet this is how it's been mm -hmm. you know like some people say if putin dies this will be over i don't think so because this is not the first time russia is committing genocide against ukraine and this is not the first time they started a war against ukraine or killed our people burned cities to the ground there were so many other instances of this and um why are they doing that like i i guess i, I can say i understand in heavy quotes why they would do that to Chechens, for instance, because it, when the USSR fell apart, Chechnya was trying to get independence and Russians, a big majority of Russians hate non-Russian people, different ethnicity, different religion. And I think their different religion is the biggest factor why they don't like uh, Chechens or other Muslim minorities. But Ukrainians, same Orthodox church, um, very similar language, in in some would say brothers why would they hate them that's a very good question so first of all i think because ukraine was always always wanted to um, break away from russia uh we were always trying to be independent and in the um, like in central ukraine uh, there was this um, like military um, community called Cossacks, Kozake in Ukrainian, mm -hmm. and uh, they were never um, like they never acknowledged any tsars or kings over them, which Russia wanted them to be a part of Russia because they were great military warriors, and like just going back going back in times like centuries back. Ukraine like never wanted to be under their rule but they always wanted to rule Ukraine and I think uh, why they hate us so much is because they cannot achieve that and they've tried so many different ways like they burned our cities to the ground they um killed millions of Ukrainians by fabricating famine mm. 
uh, and there, yes, then, um, yeah, this recent war invasion is just another example. One of the things that I found really hard to research was reactions from the federal channels in Russia. I would like to show you a few video clips. Well, we wouldn't have to do that if they didn't invade our country. Let's start from there. This is just like the ridiculousness of not just Russian government, but Russian people. Like this propaganda is a big machine with thousands, like probably dozens of thousands of people involved in it. And this anchor, this woman who's speaking on the channel, she has absolutely no problem saying something, something so ridiculous like that. And, and it seems like having almost zero emotion on her face because it doesn't like concern her at all. So this is what like also um, was so extremely frustrating for me at the beginning is how, how how is it possible that so many people have zero empathy and are willingly participating in this propaganda machine uh, and have like no empathy whatsoever, no will, no moral principles to try and change something about the situation. If Ukrainian Ukrainian president once um, signed the wrong paper, it's like a joke in Ukraine right now, but just signed the wrong paper. Um, and thousands of Ukrainians went on the street and they demanded to sign the right laws. And at that time it was about uh, taking a direction towards EU rather than Russia. And when they said no, they started to come up with whatever weapon they could make and fight the government because government is there to listen to people and uh, advocate for their for where they want to move. Uh, while in so if our government ordered our military to go and kill people in another country, that would never happen. There would be massive riots all over the country like that president wouldn't be on that post for another day while in russia everyone is like has no problem like making fun of people who are suffering because of what their government caused here is another one i would like to share with you this this uh this person this man his name is oleg nilov he's a member of state duma Yes, he's a yeah. politician and he says he's he's reading off of a paper and he says um a boy named Vova from Kiev so he's asking for rockets mm -hmm. um this is a little little boy we know how uh, little boys are they like to play with with oh, cars with military tanks with rockets and so he's he's reading a piece of paper that says a boy from Kiev he wants a rocket and then the politician adds don't worry, Vova, you will get rockets. We will send them to you. Then he takes a pause and he says, of course, that's a joke. Yeah, of course, because uh, I mean, what can you get out of this conversation? He's a bully. <laughs> that's what a bully would say, right? So for them, it's some sort of a game. I don't know. 
Russia as a country is a bully. And um, like, once again, it's so difficult for me to accept the reality the way it is. There could be so many people with this mindset, like openly supporting war, genocide, women, kids being killed, raped, and tortured. And um, they are absolutely fine with it. And they wouldn't lift a finger to do anything about to do anything about that. And like I said previously, an example of our revolution where the president just didn't sign the right document. The whole country was protesting until the president was out of that country. That was Yanukovych. Mm. Here, their whole government is bullying, um, murdering people, and they still have like the audacity to joke about it. And that, and that goes about both of those videos, this member of the parliament and that anchor on the news. So I'm not gonna lie. When I saw this second video, um, I got, I got, I got chills all over my body. For someone who is an adult, he appears to be in his late thirties or forties to say something like that. Exactly. And all these people, they have access to what actually is going on. And something that also strikes me, how come that everyone in the world is telling you that you're like plugged into propaganda and you need to just connect to VPN and read what's actually going on in the world. And yet they all still refuse to do that because they're so scared of their government. And that this is what I think every Ukrainian understood when the war started. And we were asking them to go and protest because a lot of people have um, like friends and family in Russia, right? We were asking them to go and do something. And then we just gave up because we realized that some of them openly supported and others are just so scared they so much care about like what's gonna personally happen to them rather than their country as a collective, which in Ukraine, it's absolutely vice versa. We care about what's mm -hmm. happening to first and then about our own personal interests, which is why like our governments are always afraid of people. Like they listen to them they because they know that we will not remain silent for, even for a day. This is so interesting. So Ukraine, and Russia for 70 years were under the same communistic regime. Yet it sounds like Ukrainian nation has freedom as their priority, taking care of the community as their priority number one, and then taking care of self as priority number two. How come that the two nations that were, were raised and educated using the same Marxist books have such different understanding of freedom? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. That's because we were not raised by the same people. Maybe we were part of the same country in USSR and other instances in history, but, and, and this is where I believe like in um, almost like a genetic code of the nation and in your collective subconscious that is shaped by your ancestors and is kind of encoded in you and your mentality because we, are the um, like our ancestors is 
Kiev and Rus, which was one of the most progressive countries in Middle Ages. This is where people were educated and they were successful. And this is where Russia didn't, like, didn't even exist at that time. And it didn't exist for a couple of centuries after that, which is also like one of the reasons why I am so, why I think that it is so important to preserve your language because all the views and everything that your ancestors worked on is encoded in the language. Mm. And I can give you one example how different things are encoded in Russian culture and in Ukrainian culture. This has been like everywhere on social media in Ukraine over the last like a couple of weeks. So essentially our linguists decided to introduce like feminine versions of words. We don't have this, uh, like we don't have this in English because words are not gender specific. So for example, if you say a project manager, you, you cannot really tell if it's a man or a woman, right? In Ukrainian language, because it is gender like specific, you can say if it's a woman or a man. Like they want words to, um, to show that it's a man or a woman um, fighting for women's rights, right? Mm -hmm. Like here is an example, um, just how women were treated in both cultures, right? Based on mm -hmm. this. So for example, you have a word, you have a word a secretary. In Ukrainian it will be a sekretarka. Well, mm -hmm. masculine will be sekretar, feminine will be sekretarka. In Russian language, you will have sekretar and then sekretarsha. And now mm -hmm. think about associations. When you say sekretarsha, like what, what do you hear? It's someone um, who's less skilled. To be honest, the thing that comes to mind is someone who's wearing a short skirt and probably sleeping with her boss. Very good. Yes, you see? So in Ukrainian, we don't have that association with the words. There, there is no such association with the words. Really? Yes. Then another one, redaktor. Uh, this is Ukrainian. How would you say that in Russian? Redaktor and... I think most people will say doctor, doctor for both genders, but I do remember hearing... Dr. Shah. Dr. Shah. So what associations do you have when you when you hear Dr. Sh uh, Dr. Shah? Sorry, my Russian is really bad. Um, I don't really feel good about that term because I feel that the term doctor has more respect. Exactly. As opposed to Dr. Shah. Yes. And in Ukrainian, we have for, for doctor, we have likar. And for if it's a woman, likarka. And they have zero, like, they have, like, the words have the same amount of, like, association of respect. So there is no bad association with a woman being a doctor. So so that's wow. the thing that our linguists are telling people right now, like, look at Ukrainian language. And women always had more rights in Ukraine than in Russia. And uh, it's encoded in our language because we don't have those associations of something negative or of less quality. You know, this is something interesting. I speak Russian fluently. Um, even some might say I speak Russian better than some Russians. However, this never honestly crossed my mind how the different terms, gender terms for professions can affect the way I see a person. 
But now that I hear you say that, and especially with the example of Sekretarsha, it's obvious that you have this idea in your head based on the movies you watched, based on the, um, the term around this profession and words have power. They have incredible power. And I think that is one of the reasons why Russian government is refusing to say war in Ukraine. They use it, they use the other term, special operation, because somehow special operation doesn't feel as strong of a term to describe what's happening in the world. And therefore people think that, oh, it might not be as bad. Yes. Yes, they know this very well, which is why I was just checking some uh, history facts before this um, before this meeting. And I think there were 50, more than 50 instances of Russian gov government trying to prohibit Ukrainian language over the last like 300 years. So uh, as soon as they got access to Ukraine at any point in history, the first thing they were trying to do is to prohibit the language because they, they understand this very well, how your language is basically the genetic code of your nation. And when people forget their language, they forget who they are. Let's talk about this. You've mentioned a few times the word genocide. I would like to go over some of the stages of genocide. According to the majority of opinions, there are 12 stages of genocide. There is classification, civilization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, and then denial. Now that you heard the 12 stages of genocide, first of all, I want to confirm, do you believe that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is genocide? Absolutely, yes. Okay. For anybody who does not believe what genocide is, let's talk about what it actually means in, um, in plain terms. So one of the stages of genocide is classification. What does it mean? Classification is the differences between people are not respected. There is a division of us and them, which can be carried out using stereotypes or excluding people who are perceived to be different. What are some stereotypes that uh, people have about Ukrainians, Russian people have about Ukrainians? We talked about the language. One of the largest stereotypes that I've personally experienced was that Ukrainian language is rudimentary to Russian language. Are there any other examples of stereotypes that you think Russians have of yeah, Ukrainians? They think that Ukrainians are lower class. They think that we, whenever there is some achievement or something, and I don't remember what exactly that was, but I once saw this video by a very famous therapist from Russia, and it was about some achievement from Ukraine. And she was like, I refuse, I refuse to believe that someone from Ukraine could achieve this. Excuse me? <laughs> like they're not intellectually capable? Yes. Uh, yes, that's, and that was, and that was like a therapist that I was following for a very long time. Cause I, I liked what she was saying. And then I was like completely in shock when I heard her saying that. So honestly, I don't, you've asked this question today and like, honestly, I, I don't know why they are the way they are. It's the same question as asking why good and evil exist. So yes, going back to your point, 
Yeah, they think that we are lower class, that we are less educated, our language is funny, the food we eat is funny, everything is not... Like, like the food. If I were, say, a very pro-Russian propaganda person, maybe I would have agreed on the language, the culture. Well, why food? Can you give me an example of what a Russian person makes fun of when it comes to food? Yeah, so we we eat salo and khlib, which is, I don't know what's the exact translation. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I know what that is. Yep. So, and, uh, okay, so, so here's like an example. Like, yes, like my parents were feeding that to me when I was a child. Like salo was bread and was um, onions. And I couldn't care less what Russian children eat. I couldn't care less what Russian people eat, like what food they have or what what achievements they have. Like I live my life and I'm totally fine with just experiencing the world and getting to know other cultures. It would never cross my mind to pick a specific culture, see what they eat and make fun of that. And yet Russians just feel absolutely comfortable doing that. Like making making fun of everything that's not like them. That's uh, that that sounds like something that can go under the discrimination stage of genocide, when a dominant group discriminates and strips of rights of other other ethnicity or of the other group, and um, that can go as far as what food people eat. Yeah, everything. What food they eat. Like absolutely everything. They're they are making fun of absolutely everything that has to do with our culture. Going away for a second from the um, ten stages of genocide, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about culture because I think this is a or another area that is really hard to comprehend. Russian and Ukrainian culture, in so many ways, is similar. And I say similar based on my experience. Uh, I did not have a lot of Ukrainians in my circle. So I'm strictly speaking from my experience. As someone who is Muslim, comes from minority in Russia, who is non-Russian, to me, Ukrainians and Russians are Orthodox Christians. They celebrate Christmas, they celebrate Christmas on January 7th. Unlike Catholics in the world, they have a very similar ideology and identity. I find it really hard to fathom how can one ethnicity that is so similar to the other criticize their culture. I almost understand why Russians criticize Muslims in Russia because they're so different from them. Why would would they criticize Ukrainian culture? Uh, I can see it from your perspective, right? Like someone who's different from both Ukrainian and Russian and how we might come across as similar. But I'm telling you from my perspective as a Ukrainian, I feel so not like them. And I just hate being like even hearing when someone is saying that we are similar because to me, we are two different worlds. And unfortunately, not everyone was fully understanding that before the war, because, for example, for my grandparents and parents who were born and raised in Soviet Union, the fact that Russia attacked, invaded Ukraine was an absolute shock. Like my grandfather 
was in he was I don't even know what words to choose he was heartbroken he couldn't believe that this is even possible I think for me it was a shock too but it wasn't as big of a shock as it was to my grandparents because being born in an independent Ukraine I studied history and I knew what was actually happening so it wasn't a complete shock like deep down I believe this is possible unlike my grandparents and parents this would never this is not something they would ever believe would happen what would you say is the biggest difference in culture between Ukrainians and Russians I think it's our will and uh, desire to be free and command our own destiny choose what path we want I'm getting goosebumps Yes, and be ready to die for it, like so many people from my country died for the freedom to live the way we I was, want. I was watching uh, a little clip of Solovyov. I need to take a shower after that. But when I was watching a clip of him, he was saying, interestingly enough, the same exact words that you're saying. He said, we are the nation who won't die for McDonald's. I'm not sure why they hate McDonald's so much. But he said... We are the nation who will not die for KFC. We are the nation who will die for higher values, higher morals, higher ideas. It's just, they should be putting this on their comedy shows instead of, instead of making fun of, of other nations, you know? Because that's the funniest thing I've ever heard so far from them. I think, you know, I think we're getting just just because we were talking about so much, I think something just popped in my mind right now. I think I know why they hate us so much. You know, like, um, you know, like sometimes you hate someone, but deep down you understand you hate them because you cannot allow yourself to do what they're doing. Right. So I think this is why they hate us so much, because we have this like will to die for freedom and they like they they don't have a will for anything like there i saw a video of a protest in russia like um, we wouldn't even call it a protest like whatever so anyways there were people standing with signs like no war something along those lines and then there was this uh, old lady she was holding a sign and um Uh, those police like Russian police they grabbed her and they were like dragging her down the street like an old woman and there were a lot of these men and women like strong healthy people and they saw that happening and no one stepped in so I am telling you 100% this would never ever happen in Ukraine this would be unheard of for something like that to happen like we have we have like some 15 years old Uh, jumped into the burning house and saved children like just a couple of weeks ago and in Russia they see something like that happening on the street and none of them would lift a finger to do something about this so um, so you see they don't have that will for freedom and I think they hate us because we have it. I I remember the story about that lady Um, I remember watching it and I had tears Um, in my eyes, because, you know, when you, when you hear Russians talk about how superior their culture is, they oftentimes say that we respect our veterans, we respect our elderly, um, we refuse 
to allow younger generation to be to speak freely or speak maliciously against um, veterans. Uh, one of one of one of the charges that Navalny, the leader of opposition in Russia, has received was the charge on ruining reputation of a war veteran. And then you see videos like that. Where is yes. where is that where is that grand culture? Um, it's a it's a question that you you have in your mind. Um, I'd like to change gears a little bit and um, talk about belly dance community. So this is this is how we met. Actually, we share passion for belly dance. Um, I remember seeing you in the studio, and I immediately thought, "Wow, she's good." Finally, I have a competition. So when the war in Ukraine started, mm -hmm. one of the things I was watching closely was the Instagram pages of famous Russian and Ukrainian belly dancers, Anastasia Biserva, Diva Darina, Oksana. Um, granted, she's from North Ossetia, but she is a Russian citizen. Um, sorry, Oksana, she, she holds a Russian passport, but she's from North Ossetia. Um, Ala Kushnir, etc. And I was really curious, are they going to speak about the war in Ukraine? Are they going to um, maybe do something about it? Or will they stay quiet? Majority of Ukrainian belly dancers immediately rolled up their sleeves and started helping on the ground. The ones that were overseas, they were, they were uh, organizing um, as much as they could. Not so much Russian belly dancers. Quite honestly, I was disappointed. You mean Russian belly dancers abroad or in Russia? Abroad, the big names. Um, yeah, not not surprising at all to me. So same about the like communities, so belly dance or tribal fusion. That's that's mainly the community that I'm part of. Um, I saw a lot of people. Like the first thing I think I saw was from one of Russian dancers, and she posted like a picture of a dove you know like this bird that symbolizes peace and then ukrainian flag and russian flag and this dove above both flags that's what she posted like three weeks into the war or something and along those lines and like this is like a offensive because we we did not proclaim wars against each other there is no peace to be made we were living on our land with our legally elected government and we were deciding in this country how we want to live moving forward and who we want to be our allies and who we want to work with there is no peace to be made you invaded another country and you came here to kill and eradicate millions of people so the first question that comes to my mind, why why do you when you when you were posting that picture, what was going through your head? Like what thoughts do you have in your head that prompts you to post something something along those lines? It just makes no sense. And then of course none of them were using the 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 word war or anything along those lines. Some of them were explicitly on their social media calling Ukrainian Ukrainians Nazis and just yeah, like messaging some of my some of my Ukrainian friends who are like very famous dancers, they were messaging them privately, like telling them that they're Nazis and they deserve to die. 
Russian ballet dancers were messaging Ukrainian ballet dancers, calling them Nazis and saying that they deserve to die? Yes, exactly. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was watching what was unfolding in the first months of the war was what will the entertainment industry do? Ballet dancers like Anastasia Bissero, Aksana, um, Diva Darina, Alan Kushnir, but also singers, actors, etc. And I know a lot of people who are watching might say, well, what do these people have to do anything with the war? They are artists. Their goal is to entertain. Um, on the contrary, if there is a, a, a disaster or a war going on, you want these people to continue doing what they do because it takes people's minds off of things. Should artists speak up against the war in Ukraine? A Russian artist? Russian artist. Everybody should speak up against the war. Like this, the way I see it, this is your country, right? You're you're part of this country. Okay, let's let's do another example. Your family, if your sister or someone from your family decides to bully, um, hurt, like physically hurt or kill somebody, would you just would you just like not say anything? Right? Yeah, if it's my family, absolutely. I would protect them, I would die for them. So that's exactly how a country is. It's just a much bigger family. If your government decides to kill millions of people, kill is not even like, I cannot pick up words sometimes because it's not killing, it's, I think killing, I think some of the people who died, like if they died peacefully or fast, that would like make me, just like not suffer so much for them but some people were killed like in excruciating pain being tortured and raped and so if you're if someone of your country is part of committing that to another country regardless who you are an artist a homeless person doesn't matter you speak up that's what makes you a human I, um, you know, you and I are both very, very much in our feminine. We care about our appearance. We take care of our bodies. We also make sure that we don't harm people. And um, we are what some people might say, um, feminine, feminine women. When I was um, studying at a finishing school online, uh, it's, a, it's a finishing school called Austrian Finishing School. And the owner of the school is Marie Pouchet. She's an elegance icon in Russia. So when I was studying in her school, one of the things that we learned was not to talk about politics. And I think a lot of women that are on their feminine journey, they think that if you are reaching a certain level in your life as a woman, you should no longer speak on politics because that is no longer your place. Your place is to take, to make small talk and to work on things like philanthropy, education, etc. When the war started, Marie Boucher has not said anything in support of Ukraine. As her student, I was extremely disappointed 
I was extremely disappointed because um, my teacher, and I still see her as my teacher, she often quoted, um, she often talked about this series on uh, Peacock called Downton Abbey. She talked about how elegant the women were, how much of a status they had, and how much they accomplished in life. The one thing that she forgets to mention is that in that exact series, when a war broke out, what those feminine women did, they rolled up their sleeves and they started to help wounded soldiers. They helped to be, they wanted to be helpful to the society. So as a feminine woman, as someone who is you're very beautiful, educated, by the way, I'm so amazed by how well you speak English. I mean, you, you've been here for only six months. I've been here for about nine years. I remember when I first came here, I could only say London is the capital of Great Britain and uh, GDPR. That was everything I could say. I didn't know what cheese was. But you are such an example of um, a successful, smart, educated, beautiful woman. Why should you care about politics? Because th this is our society. Like this is what shapes our society. Politics has such a um, huge way of affecting our everyday life. And like, look at what's happening in Ukraine right now. Like, women were, women, men, and children were raped, killed, and tortured. How? And it is because of politics. So that's exactly why you should care. Because everything that's all the decisions that are made on on those high on, on a high level are going to affect your everyday life and if you have empathy and as a woman you have more empathy you understand that there are consequences of those decisions so you absolutely should care about politics because this is what sets the rules and this is what becomes like the reason for all these events for... So I'm surprised about that school you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know why there is this. This is something, again, that I feel like comes from Russia or post-Soviet Union. You're there to be like a decoration in the room, smile, and be pleasant to look at, which is, to me, honestly, just humiliating. Mm. If you're not given the right to speak your mind. And just something else comes to mind. It goes back to, I think, to like 16th or 17th century uh, when Ukraine, um, I think there was something, some, let me just recall that. Some Russian, uh, Russian officials went to Ukraine and they've noticed that some Ukrainian officials took advice from women and then they came back to Russia and they said, you're not going to believe this, but this is like a very offensive name that they use towards Ukrainian. They let their women speak and they were laughing about that. I don't know what this was from. This was from a, like um, some history book or something. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm not surprised that that woman was Russian and this is what she was teaching. But in our society, I feel like there, there, there is more freedom for you as a woman. And yeah, you absolutely should care about politics if you care about people. One last topic that I would like to cover. Um, we are a little over time. Um, I hope you have 10 minutes or so. Yes. yes. Okay. 
I know you don't like to be called a refugee. Your story is not a victim narrative. Your story is a champion story. But for the simplicity's sake, I'd like to use the word refugee. What it's like to date in the U.S. as a Ukrainian refugee? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so, um, okay, so, so I just want to address this point very quickly. I think it's important. I don't like, like being like I don't like the word refugee being used in my reference because I feel like refugee has this uh, association with someone who's very, um, you know, disadvantaged, who's fleeing the country because they're looking for the for better life in another country. That this is like the association that I have with a refugee, and I am like I'm. I had an amazing, perfect life in Ukraine. I, I was not fleeing to find, but my lifestyle in Ukraine was so much better than here. And uh, so I wasn't fleeing to look for a better life. I was, it's just my, my life was ruined the way it was. Like I cannot be in my country right now because we have no electricity and I have to work uh, online, right? So also- Is there a, a term that you prefer better than refugee? Aghast. I guess. I think that will work. Because <laughs> yeah. what it's like, what it's like to date as a Ukrainian guest in the United States. Uh, I definitely uh, feel a lot of um, cultural differences. Um, I think Ukrainian society is more relationship oriented. I feel like. Yeah, family and relationship comes first and everything else comes after that. And here, I think it's a little bit the other way around. People are like, they, they take so many factors into account, like how much money you make, what's your immigration status, <laughs> you know, a list goes on and on before they almost make like a logical decision if you're a good fit for them or not. While in Ukraine, I feel like it's about, like, are you a good person for me? And we'll figure out the rest. <laughs> wow. Maybe I've just had bad experiences. I don't know. It's only been six months. Oh, no. I think a lot of women in the US can relate to this. I'm pretty sure. What is the purpose of life? A very existential question. I still ask myself that question many times. <laughs> I think the purpose of life is to like experience what we are presented with on this planet. We don't know what's going to come after that. I think it's very important to learn who you are, discover why you are the way you are, what is it that you can do in this world and how you will affect other people. And something that I've learned from experience, I think there is nothing that brings you more happiness than actually bringing value to other people. As much as many would deny, if you really dig deep and ask yourself when you were the happiest, it's probably when you made someone else happy because you helped them or you inspired them, encouraged them to do something else. So, but that needs to come from you naturally. You need to be able to give that. And to be in that position, you need to understand yourself first so I think self-discovery and then as a result of that um, giving value to other people what is freedom yeah for me it's being able to make my own choices even if they're bad good or bad doesn't matter these are my choices 
bad choices at the end of the day is just experience. <laughs> so not ever being told what to do. And then, um, yes, and that's just like an underlying something that's been happening like with Ukraine too. Like we cannot stand someone else telling us what to do. That's why and we fight so much. And to wrap up this interview, my last question would be for anybody who is still in Ukraine and struggling, what would you what would you say to them? Absolutely every single person in Ukraine is affected by the war in different ways, right? I think for me, because I was in Western Ukraine when the war started, the biggest one for me was not like physical danger, even though there were uh, like air raid sirens, like just Russian, like police chasing Russians in the city because they were trying to, you know, like put bombs in different places. Um, so I didn't feel like it was dangerous, right? But I think like psychologically and emo emotionally, I was um not able to do it like I could I was there for about a month then I left then I went back and like the curfew the sirens everything it was just taking a very huge toll on my mental health I lost my job at the time because I couldn't perform I think everyone who chooses to be in Ukraine right now they know what they're choosing I choose something different like, like you said, like I speak English, I know history, I have a very like clear opinions on things and I can spread the word here. I can meet other people so that they understand that we're, yes, we're refugees, but we're also educated people who had very good lives in Ukraine. And like th this is who we are like th this whole topic is everywhere on uh, everywhere in the world in the news but very few people actually were exposed to ukraine it's just like you right so i think maybe my mission is to actually expose people um to our culture using my education my skills and just who i am as a person um but to everyone else like i wouldn't i wouldn't like I don't think I'm in a position to get, give everyone advice. I think everyone in Ukraine that I know, they're such strong people and the choices they are make, they they know what they're doing. Like if they choose to be in Ukraine as a volunteer, they made the choice consciously. If they choose to be volunteer abroad, they know what they're doing. If they're going to the front line, they know what they're doing. Like I am not in a position to give them advice. It sounds like Ukrainians are very strong-willed and free-spirited yes and if you know not our do you know our national uh, like emblem the um, trident i've seen it but i don't know what it means so the trident has a word encode encoded in it like it's a symbol with diff with four letters uh, so the word is freedom ukrainian voila which is ukrainian for freedom so that's something we see every day, everywhere. It's a national emblem. And freedom is just, I think, one word that describes us very well. And I also think that's why, I think on a personal level, Ukrainians have very good relationship with people here in the US because that's one value that we share. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add that we didn't cover? Um, 
there are many things, honestly. <laughs> I would love to speak about the fact how, how Russia stole our name. That's one thing. Uh, I would just like love to dig deep into history. And you brought like you brought a very challenging question today. Why they are like that? Like, why do they why are they trying to just eradicate us from the face of the earth? That that is a very good question. And um I think it's you you need to know history very well and just understand how Russia as a state emerged. We have this. I don't know if it's an urban urban legend or if it's true, but they they say that our kings in Kiev and Rus, they used to send exiles, like criminals, to the swamps where Moscow currently is. <laughs> Maybe we can do a part two of so this so and talk about the history. Yeah, this is a land where they send the exiles to. Like, I wish they knew that a country would emerge there, but that's once again something to be confirmed with people who are very well versed in history. But it's just like a running joke in Ukraine. Maybe it's not a joke. Maybe we can do a part two and talk about the history next time. I would love to dig deeper because really knowing the the origins of nations, knowing the history, knowing how it all emerged is really important to understanding the context of how things are right now. So, but with that being said, I want to thank you. Um, this was a, a really great experience. And honestly, I went into this interview knowing, thinking that I know everything there is to know. And yet I was still very surprised by a lot of things. So there is a lot to learn. And I can only imagine how much there is to learn for people that don't speak Russian and don't have access to Russian literature or Russian media um, or books. Because a lot of what we talk about is not translated into English. I think it's slowly getting translated into English and slowly getting exposed in the uh, English speaking medias, but we are a long way from getting a fair representation of, of Ukraine, Ukrainian culture, people are affected by Russian oppression. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for just that. spreading the word. And uh, and wow, you've asked me some questions that I was getting quite emotional about because I wasn't ready. <laughs> Is there anything that maybe we could try one of the questions? Because if it's causing emotions, I think it is the best question to ask because that way you will be able to show your roar raw emotions and raw answers i mean uh, it's just i know that i get very angry like when uh, things that you shouldn't be like don't feel bad about it okay it's just i per like it's 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 not even my thing like there's no way for you to know right like even when you're asking a question russian and ukrainian have uh, such similar cultures like i, I see i i feel like an explosion inside of me my mm. Similar because to me we are like uh, earth and sky you know we are so far from uh, from being the same that they call us nazis again i just get so angry when i hear that because you know like um if you say something a thousand times people will believe it yes that that is what that's what they're doing they're saying it a thousand times just like they said like millions of times they were saying russian population is oppressed in ukraine and people started to believe it 
like people actually started to believe it and there were some russian speaking people in ukraine saying that they were oppressed while we all very well know who was oppressed in ukraine and it was ukrainian speaking people so to be honest that is that is one of the reasons why people are very supportive of 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 the war because they truly believe that russians were oppressed and that is perpetuated by the constant federal media that is sending the same exact message. It's copy and paste. Every single channel you open is copy and paste. And the ones that are actually saying something different, they are either banned or considered in a strong agent, which is a foreign agent. Did you ever have that in Ukraine that you would label someone as a foreign agent? No, never. Like, it, which is again, uh, something like to touch upon maybe uh, once again, when you said, and this is something that I am like fascinated and I'm so proud to be Ukrainian because I know that there are so many people in my country ready to die for freedom. And I just feel like luckiest, luckiest person in the world being born Ukrainian because I know how how like incredibly well well powered they are. Because when they say something that's against the government especially when we had Yanukovych, right? Where he, he he was the kind of president like Putin who could send someone to your house, kill your family and you because you said something wrong on social media, right? He was the type of president. And that, that, that stopped no one. Absolutely no one was afraid of that. They would put their lives and, and lives of like anybody they love uh, to fight for their country and for the right to live the way they want while russian people i feel like the first thing that comes to their mind someone's going to appear in my house and kill me and that will be the end and all they care is themselves like personally which like i'm not the one to judge that this is a very uh, this is a human emotion right but what like amazes me and how this is like how Ukrainians are just able to like fight that human emotion for your personal um, survival and making something higher than you, like your country being more important than you or, and things you have. So that's maybe like after the war, I've never been so proud of being a Ukrainian than ever before. Do you have other ethnicities in Ukraine other than ethnic Ukrainians? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, so I am personally like ha um, maybe like a quarter Polish. My grand grandfather was Polish. Then you would meet a lot of people from Poland in Lviv, in the west of U Ukraine. You have Hungarians uh, in the west as well. Uh, we have ethnical Russians, of course, in Ukraine. We have um, Tatars in Crimea um so yes were they ever oppressed tatars for instance tatars, like tatars wanted to be a part of ukraine and those tatars that moved when crimea was annexed by russia a lot of tatars moved to uh, the west of ukraine and i met a lot of them personally and no never never like not in my experience ever or nothing would ever cross like it would never cross my mind to say that tatars are, are 
of lower class because they are from Crimea. That's ridiculous and it doesn't make any sense for anyone to say that. What about the religion, Tatars being Muslims? Was it ever a factor in the way they were treated? So once again, let's say I only knew two people from Crimea when I lived there. Um, I'd never even asked them about their religion. Uh, once again, we have Russian Orthodox Church and we have Catholic Church. And just like an interesting example, you know, you have a god godmother, uh, this concept. So one of my godmothers is Russian Orthodox Church. My other godmother is a nun in a Catholic Church. And the way I was wow. raised... Yes. So, and the way I was raised by my parents or by them, it was just like, I would never, because, you know, it's very important how you're raised because all these things, they are encoded in your brain when you're a child, right? This is like your, your psychic is a blank slate and they're putting this information in you. Just like I said to you about those Russian children, that what they were told is that Russia, this big, the greatest country and it's so much better than yours. That's what they, their children were saying, right? I, for example, was bap like baptized by two different by, by godmothers from two different religions, and for me, it was just different. You know, if I want to see that godmother, she was a nun. I need to go to the monastery, and people will accept me there, and everything will be fine. Or if I want to go to church, usually we would go to Orthodox church. Um, I saw these as a child as being two different things. None of them is better than the other. It's just different. Did you ever see Muslim women wear hijab in Ukraine? No, I think no. What about um, men? Long beards, cover their hair with the uh, traditional, um, no. or, or Jewish people? Jewish people. Anybody that was feasibly non-orthodox maybe like seen them? on the street i never oh, i was never like talking to anyone before i personally never seen uh, a jewish person wearing yarmulke uh growing up in post-soviet never i didn't even know that was a part of uh tradition in judaism i was so surprised when i moved to brooklyn to see hasidics that spoke Ukrainian, that spoke Azerbaijani, that spoke Russian, uh, Yiddish, that they're Jewish. So it was very interesting. I've never seen, I knew who Jews are, but I've never seen Jewish people in Russia or in Azerbaijan or anywhere else um, in post-Soviet Union. So I think one of, one of the things that makes, perhaps we can have a separate discussion uh, for, um, for a free person or for a free nation is how do they treat minorities? Um, because it's really easy to be favoriting the majority in whichever country you are in. But I think where the distinction comes in between a free nation and a not free nation is how they treat the people that don't have as much power. Um, so yeah, maybe we can talk about that next time as well as the history. I would like to touch upon history as well. Absolutely. And I'll... Yeah, I'll do some preparations with some exact dates and names of those Tsars and everyone else. So yeah, awesome. you're good. You're very good <laughs> at asking questions and just, you know, like leading the conversation. And I'm just like so happy and excited that you're doing this. Thank you. I'm going to hopefully soon, I'm going to probably like earn the, uh, what is it? 
the biggest fan of the page, you know, like they give those. <laughs> I'll be your biggest fan very soon with the amount of comments I leave under those videos. Because I mean, that's because that's what you do. Like uh, when I look at some of those videos, they like trigger me on a personal level. I was like, this is so true. You know, like I'm so glad she's saying that because no one else, especially in the Anglophone world, uh, there's no way for them to know. It's not like they don't want to. There is no way for them to know. But there's no way to know what whatsoever. I am truly convinced that knowing English is a privilege. The stories that we hear in day to day in Hollywood, in the media, are not the most important stories. They are the stories of people that are able to A, speak English, and yeah. B, articulate their stories in a way that, that is compelling. Whereas mm -hmm. for us, for the rest of the world, for the third countries who have equally, if not better stories, we're not able to tell them exactly. because we don't speak English. Exactly. And if we do speak English, what ends up happening is people, for some reason, don't want to share those stories or don't want to talk about that. And I think for a lot of people that grew up in Russia and are here in the United States, they are still, and this is from my experience, they are still afraid of Russia. And they still think that here in the United States, Russia has reach. And if they start speaking online, Russia can do something with them across the ocean. So, so isn't that interesting? Again, back to that point, they're so scared. They're scared. They've been scared for generations and centuries, not just for the last 20 years or something when Putin was the president. So maybe this like being scared of your government government is also something that's ingrained in your DNA because what's ingrained in our DNA it's like the government is here for us not the other way around this is like no one has any doubts about this one everybody loves Zelensky like everybody thinks he's a hero right now if he does something that's against the, what people want like he will not be a president I guarantee that to you. Like no matter how big a figure is in Ukraine, they still need to listen to what the people say. Well, in Russia, it's the other way around. Russian people are the instrument and tool for Russian government to do their, like to um, like complete their agendas. So something that's also ingrained in their DNA. That's my personal like theory, <laughs> to be honest. Somebody mentioned in one of my comments on TikTok, when I spoke about discrimination against Tatars and Ukrainians, somebody said, well, at least Russia didn't have slaves. And that made me... Is really true, though? Russia is one of very few countries in the world who enslaved their own people. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Serve them. Yes. Yes. Where the rest of the world was looking at other countries and bringing slaves from other countries because they love their own people so much, Russians were like, uh, look no further. We have our own people. <laughs> look no further. Why, why put so much effort and go overseas, right? Yes, log logistically, operationally, it's not feasible to go to another country because you have to spend so much resources where you have people in your, your own backyard that you can exploit. So it's one of the reasons, and I'm not justifying the behavior of, of, of Russian people who do, not con who do not speak up against the war. However, this is one of the reasons why uh, the majority of people in Russia are so complacent 
like you've mentioned, it has been ingrained in their DNA that you do not speak against the government. The government owns you. The only safe place for you to speak about politics is your literal kitchen. And even then, whisper, what if the kitchen walls can hear? Yes, 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 and yes. I, I did not grow up in USSR, but I still, to this day, when I hear uh, anchors on federal channels speak, I still feel a little bit of fear. Uh, I'm not blaming you. Like, I'm not blaming you. This is what I believe is transferred from generation to generation. I think we got somewhere here with the question that you asked, why they are the way they are, why they're afraid to speak up, why there is this thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who run this propaganda machine, not to mention the amount of people that they have in the army who willingly go and commit murders. Like why they're doing like that? Because this has been transferred from generation to generation. You need to do what the government says or you will die and no one will help you. I think that's another point. I think why so many Ukrainians are not afraid to speak up because they know that when one speaks up, there will be 10,000 behind their backs, like having their backs. That's another point. I remember uh, speaking about families when in uh, late 90s, early 2000s, when Russia was fabricating a lot of terrorist attacks uh, conducted by Muslims, one of the things that was very prevalent in the media was if a family member commits a so-called terrorist act, you need to persecute the rest of the family mm -hmm. so that no one else decides to do this. Forget mm -hmm. about that this was fabricated by Russian government. So many religious Muslim people like Omar Sasiklinsky or uh, Aslanbek uh, Ejaev who either had to leave the country or in prison serving 17 years sentencing, they also were speaking so clearly and so loudly that if someone commits a crime, you have to persecute the rest of the family. And so when you, when you live in Russia or even say Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, which are majority Muslim, but still, if you live in those post-Soviet Union countries, you think twice before you even open your mouth because in your brain, you think, okay, not only I'm gonna get in trouble, but then the rest of my family is gonna get in trouble. And you know, when it comes to Muslims, we have huge families, you mm -hmm. know, more than three kids, four, five, in some cases, even more. So mm -hmm. this is so interconnected. And I'm curious from someone who um, is a part of the nation that is more on a spectrum to be driven towards freedom. What do you think makes a person want to be free? Um, what, what are some one or two qualities that you think manifest in like day to day, right? How can you someone who does not know what freedom is, never seen it, never tasted it, all of a sudden wake up tomorrow and say, I want to be free? Okay, so like, um, I honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's just, that's just the way I think many of us were born. And it's hard to explain. Maybe if we have like a very long conversation and brainstorm on this topic, we'll get somewhere. But if you ask me a question, like why me and so many Ukrainians want to be free from Russia and their government, why wouldn't we just be complacent like Russian people? 
I cannot explain. <laughs> like we cannot be ruled by them. And there is nothing uh like in Ukraine, we have this saying that better being better death than not being free. I'd rather be dead, but I will not like I will not be someone's slave or under someone's rule. I wish I I wish you and I could come up with a solution or answer on what makes someone want to be free because when you hear it it makes sense anybody would rather be free than be a slave because who wants to be a slave no one it's it's not a conscious choice any single person would make whether they are living in a free country or non-free country but perhaps one of the things that can help us understand this is the term slave because words like we talked about earlier have a huge meaning behind them so when you constantly call the, the the living conditions as good or you live in the greatest country in the world you have everything you need like when you're constantly using those positive adjectives maybe your mind gets so confused that you don't really make a conclusion that maybe where you're living is, is a terrible place like when you're in an abusive relationship for instance because you don't know any better right Right. And, and even if everybody who you love will tell you, hey, you should leave this guy. He's abusive. He gaslights you. He's a terrible person. But you don't. Because I see Russia, Russian people in Russia being almost like being in an abusive, horrible relationship but there for, for centuries. Exactly. I mean, okay. Uh, another thing where I got triggered when oh yeah, Russian people are not guilty, it's the government. Well, not really. Um, you're still that one family, right? You you are still responsible for the actions of your government. That's that's my opinion. So, uh, to uh, like just to talk about freedom, right? Uh, for some people, maybe freedom is not that good because it's easier to wake up and be being told what to do, what to think. So being wow. free is a responsibility. You wow. need to accept the consequences of being free. Because you, no one will tell you what to do. You will have to figure that out by yourself. I think we're getting somewhere. That is an incredible observation. Being free comes with responsibility of deciding what you're going to do for yourself. And making a lot of mistakes along the way and facing a lot of risks. Because it, it's so much uncertainty. Like, let's say, like, I am free to choose who I want to be, but it's a responsibility. Will I be good at that? Will I have enough willpower to become good at it? Will I quit halfway? Like, will I just, like, figure it out, um, right, in this world? But th this is if we talk on a personal level, how this whole thing works on a national level, like on a country level, that's a mystery to me, which, like I said, my personal theory, something that's in something that's like encoded in your DNA, like the voice of your ancestors. Um, an example, like an, an example of that was the language, right? Like our language carries so much of our history just by what associations words have how you use words, like what sayings and idioms you have in your language, 
this tells you a lot about your history. So on this example about like what made so much noise in Ukrainian media recently when these fe feminine, I, I don't know the English word for, for it, feminitives, feminitive words. I'm not sure, girl. English is my third language too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, these words were gender specific, like made so much noise because people were saying that it's not natural for them to hear those words because they started to to create words or look for those words like from some old-fashioned words so some people were saying like um this like uh -huh. this, like this doesn't sound natural sit, sit well with you yeah it doesn't sound natural and then there's this very famous uh, like writer ukrainian writer and she wrote this huge post and she provided examples why it doesn't sit well with you and then she, and she was brutal in that post she was like this is because you're so influenced by the russian culture that when i tell you that this profession is a woman you immediately think that it's a, of a lower quality now let me tell you this in ukrainian language if you look at the words like typical words if you're in ukrainian language do you notice that we don't have bad associations with that word we have absolutely neutral association whether it's a man or a woman now she's like back to your point the reason why it doesn't sit well with you because you're you've been reading too much of russian <laughs> literature <laughs> she was brutal and that caused so much like that post caused so much attention and but i loved everything she said in that post and it just proved the point again how important our language is and how smart Russian propaganda actually is, because the first thing they do, they want to cancel your language. They want you to forget it because that's your, that's your identity. They want you to forget who you really are. Like, um, I'm, like I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not gonna, like, I'm not um, gonna deny that they are smart. Like their propaganda is smart and it's very difficult to fight, but we need to be smarter. <laughs> I'm going to take off my interviewer hat for a second and talk from my personal experience. I remember when I tried speaking my native language in public, um, I, used to meet, I used to meet fun of people would immediately assume that I am from a lower class, which is everybody who is from the Caucasus is considered a lower class. Let's just be real. Whether you are educated or not, whether you speak the language well and I, I believe I speak Russian very well, and in some cases, even better than some Russians. People will still assume by just hearing the way you speak that you are second class. And I cannot begin to describe how frustrated that used to make me, especially as a young kid. When you're very little, you are not very filtering. You're, mm -hmm. When you're very little, you're not filtering your outside world as, as efficiently as you are as an adult. Right now, if something comes my, my way, I can block it, I can turn it into positive and ignore it if I want to. Mm -hmm. As a kid, so much information comes your way. You are less than, you are non-Russian, go back to your country. Like, let me pause on here for a second. Go back to your country. Uh, where? Where do you go back to? When you, as a Muslim minority, is a part of Russia, where do you go? So... When, as a child, I would hear that, it would never sit well with me because I'm smart, I'm educated, and I'm respectful, I'm polite. Why don't they like me? 
I think it is one of the things we're trying to understand why Russians don't like Ukrainians. It's a really hard question to answer because there has to be some fundamental hatred in your heart to look at a smart, educated person and say, you are second class. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just brought that analogy of like uh, Russian people and Russian government being in an abusive relationship, right? So Ukrainian people is like an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who left and they cannot make peace with that. <laughs> that was a very, very interesting example. And it made me think of Belarus because Lukashenko once said, Любимых не отпускают, с любимыми не сдаются. I don't remember the exact wording, but in English it sounds something like, if you love someone, you let them go. And I remember Timoshenko saying, if you love someone, let her go. So he said, if you love someone, don't let them go. And who was the other person? Um, oh, my apologies, not Timoshenko. The elected leader of Belarus. Let me... While I'm doing this, I mean, correct. Like, I, I assume, like, um, he's in exile. Yeah, okay, um, got it. Great. Well, yeah, Belarus, Belarus is another point, like, I personally like talking about. Tikhanovskaya. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, Tikhanovskaya, in return, said it was Tikhanovskaya or the other two women that were in the coalition. They said, if you love, if you love someone, let her go. Mm hmm. Yeah, Belarus is another point I generally like personally like talking about too, because unlike Russian people, like Ukrainian and Belarus, uh, Ukrainian and Belarus are in a very good relationship, despite the fact that there is like threats of invasion from Belarus. We know that there is like opposition in Belarus, and I think they were even like they were destroying rails so that Russian army cannot come to Ukraine. And some people were like put in jails for that. Uh, and then there are Belar like people from Belarus, like men who come to Ukraine to fight for Ukraine. And generally, like there were a lot of Belarus tourists in um, the city where I was living for the last 10 years. And every time you meet someone from Belarus and they know you're from Ukraine, you're like best friends that day. It's, it's I cannot explain, there's so much uh, we just have a common enemy, I guess. <laughs> That's what happens at work. If you and your work husband or work wife don't like this uh, Caitlin from the HR, <laughs> you're both uh, connected by the, the, the common goal, common enemy. And yes, so I remember when Tikhanovska was uh, officially elected to be the state of the government and uh, Lukashenko said, no, I, I, I'm the one who won. I got the 93%. Um, the people went on the streets and the people were protesting for months after months. I was watching very closely um, uh, YouTube, the opposition media, uh, Navalny Live. And the one thing that was coming up to mind is uh, how do you continue keep, how do you keep going when there is no light at the end of the tunnel? Because there, those protests were being suppressed over and over again. And when I look at what's happening in Ukraine, let's first answer this question. Like how, do you, how do people keep going when there is arguably no light at the end of the tunnel? Fascinates me just as much as you, like, and I am part of that nation, right? Like 
it's just something in the air. If you, when you're standing on that protest and you understand, okay, you probably see like thousands of people right now with you, but you know that you have millions ready to come like any moment. I think it's the support. Like you just so much believe that, that there are so many people that will support you in this fight, which is why I think makes you definitely more courageous. Mm. Knowing that you're not alone. Knowing that you're not alone, yes. And then the other question I had was when I'm looking at what's going on in Ukraine and I'm listening to the federal channels in Russia and propaganda or the official state, the official opinion of Russian government, I can't help but, by, but have a question in my head. Say tomorrow Russia does uh, win the war what are they going to do with millions and millions of people in Ukraine? Are they going to turn everybody into a slave? But that's the thing, like, how will they win? Like, what is, what is the definition of win? The definition of win is in their mind, and that's the illusion that they've been living with, is that we want to be part of Russia. I think they were pretty shocked themselves when they saw how much resistance there is uh, from, like, from probably like 99.5% of people, right? There was so much resistance and uh, people were massively switching, are still massively switching from those who were Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking because, and they say, because everything Russian is so like, I hate it so much. I don't want anything of it in my life. I don't want to hear a single Russian word in my life from this point on because I hate everything that has to do with you, your culture, your language, and everything that you represent in this world. Do you speak Russian? Trying to forget. Mm. <laughs> I speak Russian, yes, but I don't... Like, I, I can speak it, I can understand it, but I don't really do that anymore and I've never really did I had the need to either but yeah I, I like we had Russian language as the subject in school I um I grew up bilingual because media was in Russian mostly when you turn on the tv everything was in Russian then uh foreign literature subject in school Russian was I don't remember if Russian literature was a separate subject or if it was part of foreign literature but uh, we did have to read like Russian literature in Russian. So we didn't read the translations into Ukrainian. We read it in Russian. And when you read, you learn the language very fast too. So, uh, and then like some of my best friends, like before the war were Russian speaking. I was always speaking Ukrainian. They were speaking Russian to me. We could perfectly understand each other, right? But after the war, I don't have a single friend who did not switch to Ukrainian like permanently. Mm. Um, like speaking speaking at home, at work, everywhere else. Even my friend was telling me the other day this funny story. She's Russian speaking. She's from Sumy, and she said that she wrote this. She was at work and she was writing a message, like explaining something that she did, and she wrote like a very huge message. And then she realized it was in Russian, and she was like, "I had to delete all of it and rewrite it in Ukrainian because I'm not sending a message in Russian." <laughs> so, so many Ukrainians now after the war started refuse to speak Russian yes and of course Russian propaganda is saying because they've been scared by our Nazi government that's why they're switching to even those those same like especially bigger bloggers because this is like a good example they're like telling them to their face we hate you that's why we don't speak your language 
Well, they still managed to turn that around and say that because they're forced to, because they are oppressed. I want to ask you one last question. Um, I know instead of an hour, it's been a two hour conversation and I'm enjoying it so, so much. Um, but I also want to be mindful of your time. One thing that emerged in the Western media when the war started was discrimination against black people in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. People were creating articles. I think CNN also um, uh, did a report on how black students in Ukraine were pushed to the ends of the lines to escape the country. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this, and this is going to be very controversial. I don't even know if I should do it. You can decide later if you want to publish this or not, but I'll tell you the truth. You can decide if you want to bring this up. Okay. So on the third day, or maybe it was second day of war, I went to the border because I panicked and I decided that I want to cross the border. Um, it was like an impulsive decision. I was, my brain was paralyzed. Uh, I was just doing what everybody else was doing. So I did went to the border as well. And I was trying to get into Poland and I walked five hours. Then I slept in some motel. I don't even want to go into details how bad those 48 hours were. Uh, bottom line, I stood in the line for almost 15 hours. And then what started happening, this is... It was in February. It was in February. It's winter. It's winter. It was very cold. It was uh, what was happening. So there's a lot of people who are in a survival mode, right? Because they woke up yesterday with air raid sirens that was not an for education purposes. It was a real air raid siren. And then when I looked out of my window, I saw like panic in the air. People were not like running somewhere, but everybody was in a hurry. There were there were lines at grocery stores, ATMs, there were traffic jams everywhere. So it's not like in the movie where everybody is like yelling and running, running around, but you could feel the panic in the air. And I opened Instagram, I started looking at stories. Some of my friends were already crossing the border. So the war started at 5 a.m. I woke up at 9 a.m. because I work like second half of the day. So I was like, people are crossing the border like already uh and anyways so second day i panicked and i went to the border and there was this line which was a, a line of people uh like there were probably like a couple thousand people Poland, the border was with poland despite what me what, what media was saying was not open it was closed like and they didn't open it for maybe um, like 48 hours or something. The, and the border was, with Poland? Yeah, it was closed. I don't know what it was about. I mean, I understand there were decisions to be made and stuff. The the, the border where the cars can cross, uh, can cross, that one was open, but it was also slow. But the um, like uh, border to cross on foot, when you just walk, that one had like 15 hours wait. And then at some point, it just shut down and people, instead of standing in the line, they started to, um, like, to form this, like, you know, instead of a line, suddenly it's just a big crowd and crowds are very dangerous, right? 
Because someone. Oh, what day of the war? Second. That was like February 25th. So this is where it becomes very dangerous because if someone falls, like people can die in crowds. Like everybody knows that, right? A long story short, I did not cross the border because I changed my mind. <laughs> I just started feeling so guilty. And when I was standing in that crowd, I felt like that's not where I'm supposed to be. Like, uh, any, anyway, something hit me just like when I was actually this close to crossing, like literally maybe if I waited 30 more minutes, I would have crossed, but I changed my mind and I went back. Wow. Was it somebody, it was it something somebody said? Was it something you saw? Why so did you change your mind? Like, first of all, like, well, I was like obviously exhausted physically and mentally and I was trying to police the line because I know that I can right I can be loud if I need to like I can tell someone to anyways something kicked in it was like um you know like this emergency situation and you don't know who you are in that situation so that that was who was me like I was very worried that the crowd was becoming a bubble and it was becoming dangerous and I wanted people to stand in the line you know, there's three reactions, right? Fight, flight, and freeze. You went into the, the fight where you started to organize immediately. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and there were, uh, uh, again, it was, it was difficult and scary because you someone can just hit you, right? If they don't like what you're saying, like it was scary. But there were like other women who were doing that. There were other a couple of Ukrainian men who were doing that because they came to the border to help their uh, wives cross and then go back they were just worried about them being in that line and wow, there, that's that's a strong real man right there yes yes and there were also so men who could leave like uh, so there were also these like 17 16 years old boys who can leave the country because they're under 18 years old but they're still men and they saw what me and other women were doing. So they were helping us. So for me, it was like uh, the police, like the, the line police were women. Those teenage boys that were helping us. A couple of Ukrainian men who were husbands of some of the women. So we were trying to police the line. Um, and those 17, 16 years old boys, did they cross the border? Yeah, they can cross the border. It's just that, well, uh, just going back to my point that I changed my mind. So so I say that I was policing the line maybe for a couple of hours and then I gave up. Like it, the, it's thousands of people. And then everybody just like started like this huge crowd. And we stood in that crowd for a very long time. And uh, I wasn't doing anything at that point. I was just scared that I made a lot of people angry by trying to police the line. Uh, several people like literally yelled in my face. Um, so I was just becoming a little bit scared of that. And then I was in that line and- Were you by yourself? I was with two friends. And um, um I don't know I just felt like I'm not in the right place like I just felt like I needed to be somewhere else and it wasn't like I felt like it wasn't time to leave yet and that I need to go back it's hard to explain why anyways 
we just turned around and started walking back. <laughs> like we already walked five hours and we started walking back. What was it like walking back? Like, uh, this is so much like ingrained in my mind. Like I, I remember every single detail of that situation. As we turn around, there is this man who stands on the street and he's trying to um, like uh, get a car on the street. And he was walking in a different direction. He was going back towards you. Ukraine as well from the border so I stopped and I, and I just asked I just started talking to him and I was like what are you doing he's like I'm trying to catch a car to go to Ukraine he, he was just like I just crossed the border I was like you just crossed the border where are you coming from and he was like from Latvia or Lithuania but he was Ukrainian living abroad and he was like I'm coming back to defend my country and after I talked after he said that I was like I was like, um, that's why I cannot stand in that line. Like, I feel closer to him because do, do you understand what happened to him? Like, he crossed the border back, which means he is still there. Like, he made a decision to come back from a foreign country where he lived because his country got attacked. And so that's that was my first. So So once again, like, everything that happened to me in those days, I feel like was for a reason. Like the fact that I was policing the line, the fact that um, I changed my mind and then that I met this man who was going back. This is, I think, I realized that there is nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, I think that was the point when I realized there is nothing to be afraid of because there is like help coming, like the, like like this man. And then, so once again, we, we started walking. It was very cold, like it was very cold. And I knew that I have like two hours before I pass out. Like I, I know my body very well. I knew that I have very limited amount of time, but we had so many kilometers ahead of us. So um, it everything that happened after that was a miracle. So there were people in cars and you would knock on cars. No one would open the door. All the cars were, uh, a lot of people started going back because they understood they're not going to cross. So again, like a lot of people, a lot of cars, no one's really helping anyone out because everybody is in a survival mode. And then out of nowhere, this man stops, like just like a man with a car and he stops and he's like, where are you guys, like, where are you girls from? So we said we're from Lviv and he uh, he's like, jump into the car. I'll drive you back. Weren't you afraid? Some stranger man so, to jump into the car? So he again, this is you just read someone like he um, you have to believe that everything is going to be fine. But I think I could read him very well. And he was very just by his face and just by my ability to read people. I could I could see that it was fine, like he was okay. And then we sat into the car. He turned out so this person who he was, he said that I knew that this would happen. He said, I knew there would be people like you girls who decide to go to the line, understand that they cannot cross, will be trying to go back and will be stuck in the middle of the forest, just like you are right now. So what he was doing, he was a volunteer driving people back because he knew this would happen. And he knew that there were a lot of women and children. And this is this was his role at that point in time, help figure this whole thing out. 
and he was such a like passionate he was so passionate like he, he was gonna go to the I think he was gonna go to the front line in a couple of days and this is this was I think Russians were already approaching Kiev at that point and we were just all praying for Kiev to survive that night because we knew that if we survive that night, we will survive the war. But if Kiev gets taken that night, it's over for all of us. So, and the speech that he gave us in that car was the most motivational speech I've ever heard from anybody in my entire life. He loves his country so much. And I don't know why my life was like that during those two days, why I had to meet those two men. But when I came back to Lviv on that day, he drove us back like to my apartment uh he was just like just you need to help everyone out we all need to stay together and then when we was when we were driving back we picked up two more people uh they i think they were also coming from abroad uh um and they didn't have where to stay again just random people right we picked as well on that road so they didn't have where to stay so they stayed at my place in my at my apartment that night and then they catched a train to the east uh, to the east next day what so, was the motivational speech that he gave you what did he say it was just about how much he hates russia how we all need to stick together like he's going to drive me back i'm going to take these people and let them stay overnight they're going to go to the east and this man was going to go and fight in the front line and he said this is what we all need to do like we need to stick together and he was he was not and he was just so passionate and so loud and uh anyways i think that i think that was the time and i think there was a reason for me to like be in the whole situation like panic get scared go to the border change my mind meet these people because when i came back I wasn't scared anymore. You know, I think um, very often um, in in the West, um, women or the media bash us very strong masculine men and say that they are uh, they are toxic, that they they, they shouldn't be um, the way they are. And uh, to be fair, there are a lot of toxic men in out there in the world. I have experienced my share of toxic men. I'm sure you have as well. But when, when you meet some, somebody like the guy that you met, the two people that you met, you really understand the importance of having masculine strong men in your society. Yeah, I Someone think the was... difference between masculine strong and toxic, yes, they are both, both of these examples of men were like, you cannot, like, you cannot possibly be better than that this is the absolute highest bar you can be at as a man if you go back to your country you sacrifice your great life in Europe and you go back to your country or like this man who drove us back he said he had three daughters and granddaughters and he said that the shelter is already in place he's been building that way in advance because he he knew this would happen so he said i made sure that they're in the shelter right now and then i left to come and help like women like you who are in this line right now so both are masculine but i wouldn't call any of them toxic again i don't know them personally but there was like for me there was nothing i think in the in the west i think immediately 
when you see a masculine man, a lot of women I, will uh, associate. Okay. A lot, a lot of women would, will associate a masculine strong man with toxicity. Right. I, I, I was, I was living in New York City for a very long time, and um, when you meet someone who's like masculine, some women will uh, immediately call him toxic because he has, he does certain things that are uh, natural to a strong man. You know, take charge, take responsibility, lead. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so often in the Western world, that is considered toxic. And here you are, you've experienced men that took charge, took responsibility, took care of their family first, and then went back to, to take care of women. They don't even know just because they are women. Some, the- woman, will, some woman in the West will call that toxic. <laughs> so, like, for me, it was like a miracle, like... I because like I said I my brain was telling me you have two hours like do whatever you want you have two hours before I pass out and and this just happened out of nowhere yeah and this is yeah I think after the war started we've seen uh if you talk about like feminine and masculine energy this was also the most confusing like not confusing but just too many emotions involved when it comes to feminine and uh, masculine energy because there were children and women tortured and raped by Russian soldiers and uh, I think there was even a video of a child being raped by a Russian soldier and that video was like in the media and then there were there were a video of Ukrainian men being tortured by Russian soldiers and I think the amount of hatred I had for the whole like male population of the world like I immediately started to project that on all men like how cruel they can be but then on the other side you see this like these two men that I just described you see this like unbelievable will and like all the best qualities that you can think of a man which is to protect their women and to protect their country so my brain was so confused because I could see the maximum of evil and the maximum of good. I can see why you were confused. It is, it is, it is really, so it's very hard what you had to go through and, and experience and still have family members and, and, and friends that are going through that back in Ukraine. Um, but it is, you know, above all, you have the perseverance in daily lives to not only be an American and do what everybody does, go to work, eat, work out, dance, but you also have this second life where you you have to maintain a certain composure in order to not feel constantly emotionally drained when you see the news. Um, but that's a good question because honestly, I don't know what's happening to me and... I feel like my psychic is just blocking it so much and that I just get so busy with the new job, with trying to figure things out, learning how to drive, you know, all the things that you need in the U.S. And sometimes I open the news and then I cry all of a sudden. Like, I think my psychic is like blocking it so much Then at some point it will all rush back to me much more that I'm, that I will expect um because 
Anyway, it's hard to explain. Like, I, I think I'm not processing it properly yet because we're still at war. It's like, I'm still in this, like, I still need a lot of strength because this is not over yet. It's so, almost like taking care of your mental health is a privilege right now. Absolutely, yes. So so my, my brain is just like pushing that to the corners of, to the like my psychic is push, pushing that to the corners of my brain. But I think once like you get this relief, like maybe the war is over or something else is going to give you relief, it's going to rush back to me a big time. And, and that's when I will actually start processing things. But again, like maybe I think like the biggest breakdown that I had was on day seven of the war. And then going back to that topic of genocide, you said like when you hear Nazi and like what do you think of like I think of genocide because there was this there was this thing uh, before the war like a couple of months before the war from satellites we could see what they're doing right we could see exactly how many people they had like army what type of weapons they had what type of supplies they were bringing there so every, everybody could see that it was all in the news one of the things that they were bringing there were like these huge cars that were like mobile crematories. So we thought, everybody thought, this is what, where I had like a breakdown. I was I was uh, still uh, like, that was, you know, it doesn't matter. We thought that they have those mobile crematories because they expect a lot of Russian soldiers to die and they want to cremate them so that their relatives never find out what happened to them and that there is no evidence of soldiers being killed, right? And then when the war started, I'm sorry, the mobile crematories were they Russian or Ukrainian? Uh, Russian. So Russian. it was on the Russian. So along with their military weapons, supplies, like blood, to you know, to oh, okay. Blood. So they brought them they so that they can minimize the number of Ukrainians that they killed. Yes. Yeah, so in Ukraine, we thought we were like, why do they bring mobile crematories to the border? Like, what's the purpose for my mobile crematories? And then everybody in the news was saying, yeah, they probably expect that a lot of Russian soldiers will die. So they don't know the families to find out. So they're going to cremate them right there on the ground. But you know what? We were all wrong. The mobile crematories were for Ukrainian people because their agenda was to kill as much of civilian population as possible and pretend like it didn't happen by cremating them right there on the ground. So this is why I said genocide, because I think this is that piece of news hit me so hard. I had a fever like I was feeling so bad that like my whole body was trembling and I had a fever and I was vomiting and I couldn't like understand what's happening with my brain until someone like my therapist explained to me that. This is what happens to your psychic when you realize that you are an object for genocide. Like you are the one, like you are the target for genocide. That's why I get so angry and I have this volcano inside of me whenever someone says, you are similar, you're a brotherly nation. Do you speak Russian language? Like things like that. I understand you, you including other people, they mean good. They're just asking a question. They have no idea what that can like cause and I'm trying to stay calm uh, and answer the question or just joke about it sometimes but I get 
so incredibly angry. A little part of me can understand. Obviously, I have not experienced what you have experienced, and I'm still processing this because it's. I think I will be processing it for a few days uh, after this interview. But one little part of me um, does feel angry as a Muslim, as a minority. Um, again, someone who's educated, someone who is uh, arguably a very uh, good asset to to Russia and someone who can do so much good, yet that someone is, is treated as a second-class citizen and her life uh, literally means nothing. On a subconscious level, or maybe on a conscious level, really, you will get mad because if you have an ounce of self-dignity, you will not let someone else put you down when you know deep down in your heart that you deserve to have a good life. And I think in general, for anyone who's listening, uh, you don't have to go through the experiences that uh, Irina has been through. And I hope to God that you don't go through this. But if you have someone in your life who's putting you down or the society saying that you can't do this or you can't do that because you are not worthy, just listen to that little, little quiet voice that's whispering in your head and telling you that I am deserving of having the good life and I'm deserving of every single dream that God has put in my heart. And you should get mad when someone tells you otherwise. I think it's only natural to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you so there much. Were... <laughs> I think it was a little bit easier when you said we're going off record, even though we weren't going off record, which is good, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, think I, I wanted to say what I wanted to say. Just those like things. Uh, like from a personal experience, right? Yeah. Like again, I like to call myself a guest. I don't want to be a war refugee, but I am, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's you are living two lives, you know, for your colleagues, for people that meet you that know don't know that side that side of you. And I think a lot of immigrants and refugees that come to America they can relate to this, right? You're living two lives. And that that side of you, the second part of you, so many people don't see and they don't know that you are struggling with the repercussions of fleeing a war every single day. And yet you come to work, you put a smile on your face and you do what you do best. Um, you, you, be, you, be, you, you just express who you are. You, you, you are yourself. Um, but... I think this is a this 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 conversation needs a part two. So I'm gonna <laughs> let you go. <laughs> I would love to talk about history next time. <laughs>